You're listening to WERALP, Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. Stopping by woods on a snowy evening. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near, between the woods and frozen lake the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. Mm. So we wanted to have a conversation about solitude and curiosity and why begin with frost foam? And the first line of the poem begins with a premise whose woods these are. I think I know his house is in the village though. So it's that I think that always got me curious in this poem. Uh, and also it's an act of curiosity for him to stop in the woods in the first place. So there is some connection with I think I know and curiosity and the, the moment of uh, what Rilke calls the heart pause that ensues when he really looks into the woods. Coming to you from Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and this is Choose to be Curious. Welcome. This is a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. Today, poet David Keplinger joins me in reflecting on solitude as a deeply curious endeavor. David is the author of six books of poetry. His new book of selected poems, The Long Answer, came out in April. His fifth book, Another City, won the Rilke Prize in 2019. And in June of this year, the Poetry Society of America selected him for the Emily Dickinson Award. He turned to fellow poet Robert Frost to start our conversation. Uh, One of the things I like to think about is this idea of whose woods these are. I think I know his houses in the village, though. Never comes back to that. Just begins there, and 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 so the the question is, well, whose woods are they really? Um, uh, and and should we know? And Frost is kind of winking at us, and from a from a psychological standpoint, I guess you could say that that these are our woods. That um, sometimes we find ourselves in the the getting and spending uh, arena of life, and we forget ourselves, and then we stop and we pause. And we slide into this unconscious or subconscious space, which is between the dream life that we live at night while we're asleep and the waking life that we live in the daytime when we're getting and spending things. And we slide into that middle space space, and we say, uh, I think I know, I think I know whose woods these are. And we, we discover things about ourselves that we had forgotten. So... What I find interesting about that 
is that uh, it opens with this, you know, this possibility of curiosity about, I think I know who these woods are, but, but sort of walking away from it. But, you know, frankly, I don't really care because <laughs> I'm here right now. And then there's this sort of return to, okay, but I got to get back to that world where I'm worried about whose woods they are. But, but in that moment, in that pause, seeking, choosing the solitude and the moment, which to me is sort of that pregnant pause, which is a very curious, very internal moment, right? Sort of bookended by these places that maybe dictate curiosity in different Mm -hmm. ways. Yeah. So it's a lovely, it's a lovely pause. I mean, I think you described it as we were getting ready for this conversation as, as a sacred pause. So tell me more about that. Well, I guess it's sacred because uh, it's it it's not for anything. Yeah, uh, it's not to accomplish anything. It's not to to get anything in return. It's not self-reflecting. It's a pause that 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 looks outward and toward, as opposed to back at oneself to say, "Well, how is this about me?" Uh, and mm-hmm. that makes it sacred to me. When we talk about a spiritual purpose, as Mary Oliver describes, all poetry should have. When we talk about a spiritual purpose with my students, I ask them what what she means by spiritual. And it doesn't have to involve God. Spirituality is merely about finding that thing that is bigger than yourself and allowing yourself to fall into it and to surrender to it, to let go to it. Uh, And that's a terrifying thing. Rilke, uh, the poet I mentioned earlier, says that every angel is terrifying. And by terrifying, he means that, that, that the angel is this huge vastness that we can barely imagine and, and which confronts us and which we have to surrender to. And it's a vastness that is, you know, standing before this person in the woods. It's, it's sacred, but it's not necessarily peaceful. It's tempting to say, let me cast off everything that I, I worry about in this life and empty myself into these woods. But the real hinge that this poem sits upon is the fact that we're in the presence of this hugeness, this sacredness, and we're pausing there. And then we go back to our life and we bring back with us what we learned from that moment when we, we entered you know, our own unconscious woods. So the idea is not to stay there. The idea is to pause, reflect, or pause, empty oneself into the woods, and then return to the world and to bring that vastness with us into the world in the form of awe and wonder and kindness and compassion. You say something very similar in your Prosperous Departures, which I guess sort of chronicles kind of a pattern of seeking solitude and and sort of stepping out of the everyday. And you say something like, in solitude, you're or we're entering into a chamber of listening. And the idea is through journeys to learn to listen, to bring the centeredness found in solitude back into the living world. That's what you're talking about here, isn't it? Yeah, learning to listen and not to just to hear things, but to to actually listen. And what is this this act of listening? It's, I would say, equivalent to the, the curious state. Because when you're listening, when you're really listening, you're willing to change. Mm. That's something that a friend of mine, Kermit Moyer, a fiction writer, has said over and over in his teaching, 
that true listening is a willingness to change. And, and, and think about that. That's what curiosity is to a scientist too, that if the, if the facts should present themselves that go against the theory, the, the working theory, you have to change the theory. And it's, it's difficult to be in this constant state of willingness. Uh, but that willingness is crucial to the, the act of listening, to the act of curiosity, and to the, the act of pausing in the way that Frost is describing it here. Because the, the speaker here is willing to, it's really just acknowledging the beauty of the woods, the, the depth and the, the vastness and the, the scariness and the, the, the wonder that he experiences in their presence. And then also to be willing to go back into the world, not forced back into the world, but willing because one has made certain promises. Mm-hmm. My early teachers would talk about this poem as a poem that was certainly about temptation or, or specifically suicide. Because we get to that point where he says, the woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep. And you know, you'd think he's talking about death. Uh, but really, this is about anything that that averts our path. And sometimes it's, uh, it's for, for nothing whatsoever. There's, there's nothing to be gotten from, from a sacred pause other than this sense of largesse that, that adds to, to your life. And you can't predict how that can be used if used at all. So I love this poem for that reason, because all of these trips that I've made, have have been about shedding the the obligation and the onus of having to do things for other people, for myself, for the sake of of doing things. In American life, we're so focused on doing, and this is not even about getting anything from, say, meditation. It's just about pausing and doing nothing. And that's almost a rebellious thing. <laughs> right, right. So what's so interesting to me about that also is uh, you mentioned, you know, how scientists talk about it. I interviewed Jacqueline Gottlieb some time ago, and she's a neuroscientist. And one of the ways that she talked about curiosity was that it's this interest in collecting things that we don't, like we don't have any sense that, that they are relevant or that they have value. And that that's sort of the point mm-hmm. in her mind. Yeah, you don't. It, it's 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 a, an act of trust. Curiosity, I guess you could say, is an act of trust that 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 this will serve some good. Uh, this willingness, this openness, this listening, this 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 attentiveness will serve some good. Though I might not even be a part of it, but I know that 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 somewhere down the line it will it will open some door that was previously closed. Mm. There's not really a big difference between a scientist and a poet when when you get down to the source of things. Really, it's about this willingness. And uh, so many days I've I've sat and, you know, before my own woods, the, you know, the, the metaphorical woods we're talking about now, trying to write a poem and paused at those woods and seen nothing. And then other days for, I, I have no idea why, for, for no reason that I can discern that the, the poem comes and it feels so easy and, and it, and it just 
kind of pours out of me. And so that's how it works. And that's how it works for science too. You just don't know sometimes what you're even looking at, but you keep looking. And the history of, you know, homo sapiens is that we keep looking and for better or for worse. So I think that, that the, the cross section between reason and emotion, uh, the arts and science is this, this thing that you've been talking about now for decades. It's this, this willingness, this curiosity that seems to be written into our DNA. Because we have a, a, a knowledge of our own death, curiosity might be medicine uh, that we were born to discover. Um, there's, a, there's a feeling of aloneness in our bodies that we've talked about before, you and I, that, and that aloneness seems to be part of the human condition. It's existential, where we have a brain, our brain tells us that we're alive, and we're, we're bags of water filled with electricity, bumping into other bags of water. Uh, and it, even in intimate relationships, there's a feeling of not ever being close enough. Uh, because we're we're stuck here in this form, in this embodiment. And that aloneness can lead us in two directions. W- one is, uh, not to generalize, but I think basically one is loneliness, which is a belief that that separation is real. And our life in the 21st century would reinforce that, that this, that this separation is true and real. This, this play of the world, this lila, it's called in, in Buddhism, is actually a fact. And we will never, ever make contact with the other or with the outside world. And, that, and then loneliness is what's born of that. But on the other side of it is this thing that we're talking about now, which is a feeling of solitude. And in solitude, the, the medicine comes of letting go of your small self and entering these big woods for a moment. And in those big woods, you see that, oh, yeah, everything's growing out of everything else. Everything really is connected to everything else. Uh, And that feeling comes in solitude. And I think that it's a necessary medicine for our time, especially because the belief in loneliness is so strong. The wisdom that comes of solitude is simply that, you know, uh, your life is, is not really your own. You belong to everyone and everyone belongs to you. And, and the other thing about this poem is that it's about going and staying at the same time. There's a, there's a movement forward in this poem, and there's a pausing that's written right into the form of it really quickly. The, the rhymes of the, of the stanzas go, no, though, and snow in the first stanza. And then there's this funny third line, which is the word here. And he will not see me stopping here. So what happens is that the the rhyme stops just as he's describing the stopping in the woods. And this happens all throughout the poem. So here becomes the the engine for the next stanza, which goes queer, near, and year. And then there's a stopping line in the third line of that stanza, which is lake. And then lake becomes the engine for the next stanza, shake, mistake, and flake. And then we have sweep in the third line of that stanza. And then sweep is the engine for the closing off of the the poem and the 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 closing off really of the of the woods life that he's experiencing and going back into town deep keep sleep and sleep there is no there is no pausing line 
in that stanza because he's now decided to go back. So it's brilliant in the way that the mood music of the poem matches so perfectly the message of the poem, that we are in this state, of, mostly in the state of, of movement, but there is this, this um, sacred woods that we mostly disregard, but by visiting them now and then, we take away that largesse that I was describing, that feeling of vastness that we can give back to the world in the form of listening, willingness, compassion, attentiveness, all of those things that, that really make life worth living. So I love this idea of the mood music. Yeah. And it seems to me that it's easier to hear the mood music when we don't have what somebody described as the protective distractions of life and that solitude sort of removes those so we can hear the mood music. You know, when we started this, I hadn't really thought about the the curiosity and the solitude of reading a poem. But as you were talking about this mood music and the effect that this ebb and flow and this structure has on us that most of us don't even understand, but would experience anyway, mm. there's like an extra layer. I'm just seeing the wisdom of your choice of this poem for this conversation. There's just this, these extra layers that illustrate, embody... Uh, exactly what we were trying to talk about here. Yeah, and and you know the listeners don't know this, but we we have had a discussion about this before, and um, even in a long discussion about this poem, one of the things that we forgot to talk about, or that I forgot to talk about, uh, is the little horse that comes in the the second stanza, uh-huh. which is so important too. Because the little horse, and the lines go, my little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near between the woods and frozen lake, the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there's some mistake. The only other sounds, the, the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. And this is, I love this little horse because this little horse is our, is our thinking mind. Yeah, it, the little horse is the is the one that makes lists that that have to be followed um, exactly as we expected them to be followed. the The worrier in us is the the little horse, and the, and of course Frost is is acknowledging that even in this moment, it's not like ah suddenly commune with nature, go. That there is this little <laughs> horse shaking the. Uh, the harness bells in the background saying, mm, excuse me, uh, you have many other things to do than to sit out in the woods staring at the leaves and the branches. But the, the overpowering sentiment of the poem is that, you know, yeah, that's there. That, that, little, that little voice and kind of a cute voice, my little horse, is there in the background. But uh, we, can't, we can't let that horse rule the day. I am the driver of this carriage. And what is this distinction between the eye and the horse? And the eye is the, is the bigger self, the one that acknowledges this connection with, with one's own nature, with nature itself. Uh, and the thinking mind is the separate one that would lean in toward the loneliness, I guess you could say. 
and who that overrides, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter that the horse is shaking its mane and the moment feels a little stolen, right? In between the, the coming and the going and sort of taking this moment. And I think we, we talk about this, you know, in sort of everyday life too, of these sort of stolen moments and that solitude has a certain transgressive quality about it. Like it, there's something wrong with sort of stepping out. Yeah. In this case, he's stepping in, he's sort of trespassing another transgression. Um, but those those stolen moments aren't so stolen, right? They're claimed. Right. Even in the beginning of the poem, the way we've been talking about it, whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fall. This is, this is like a, an act of trespassing. This moment that I'm stealing um, is my moment. These woods that I'm visiting are, are my woods. These belong to me, but to the big me, not to the little horse, but to the big me who, who, who feels that, that, uh, that largesse. Uh, so it's, it is, I love the word transgression here because it, it is proposed to society as something that is wrong to take time for yourself in solitude. But in fact, the, the, even to take the time for yourself in solitude, to have the time for yourself in solitude, yeah, to enjoy the time for yourself in solitude, because this is your time. These are your woods. This is your moment. As a, as a poet, you know, I, I, I got into poetry because... My little horse <laughs> um, was very loud. <laughs> here's the here's the funny thing. <laughs> My little horse was very loud and very active, uh, uh. and I got into poetry because I thought that the little horse was the poet. And uh, you know, and I wrote for five years, six years, in, into my mid twenties, just spilling my my thoughts onto the page and trying to find a voice for myself. But what happened was that in 1995, I, um, I couldn't get a job here in the United States um, teaching or do, doing anything really that was lucrative enough, lucrative enough to convince me to stay. So I um, applied for a, a fellowship with the Soros Foundation, which at the time was sending teachers to Eastern Europe to uh, create conversations with the newly democratized um, states, you know, of the former Soviet bloc countries. Yeah. So I ended up in uh, the Czech Republic. It had only been Czechoslovakia a minute ago. And I ended up in this little town called Friedek Mistek, but in this imposed solitude in a place where I didn't really speak the language and uh, a place where quietness was really enjoyed in a way that it's not in the United States. Mm. And to not even have the language to, to speak up and to add something to the conversation, to just have to sit and be silent and to listen for the little nuances of language in people's words so that I could become a part of the conversation. It was a real, it was a real gift to my life. That I'm still um, that, that I'm still benefiting from being in those woods, um, and being in that country, being in that place without you know the 
the real magic of language to to defend me from my own fears and thoughts and desires uh, was was really uh, a time of transformation for me when I when I realized that this little horse that was doing all the talking and the shaking of its harness bells was not really the poet in me. The poet in me was this this other presence who I felt when I was you know, when I was sitting there with a lot to say and no words to say it, or in the woods, just being silent. Uh, and my poetry really did change after that. And so for years after the Czech Republic into my thirties and forties, I would take my, my time in the summer, um, somewhere, whether it be in the United States or whether it be abroad and, uh, just rent a little place or get a little residency or a fellowship or something like that and go off for a few weeks at a time and have that feeling again of having nothing to say uh, or no one to say it to. And, and then the poems would, would flow after that. I would come back and that's when I would be writing the poems. Uh, so it was a great lesson that I had not planned on, but which kind of propels this conversation. And, and I think it was at the source of all my interest in solitude in the first place. 25 years ago. You've been listening to WERA 96.7 FM. Many, many thanks to my guest, David Keplinger. For all my previous shows and links to more of David's work, visit choosetobecurious.com. Our theme music is by Sean Ballack, and this is Hickory Interlude by One Such Village via Blue Dot Sessions. I hope you'll join me again next time. Until then, choose to be curious. One more thing I wanted to, I wanted to ask if you were interested. I have three poems here which are on this subject of, of the experience of solitude, my versions of stopping by yeah. woods, essentially. What a gift. Yes, by all means. This one is called Every Angel is Terrifying. And uh, since I mentioned that line from Rilke earlier in the interview, I'll, I'll read this one. Every Angel is Terrifying. There was the time one of the younger deer stepped into the hedges at the house that we called Homewood. And through an open window, he lowered the shale-colored muscular shoulders. His eyes met my eyes and pushed partway through. I thought it was to see who was alive in here or to offer some encouragement with his aware, impassive face. May I stay heavy on this mind, I found myself requesting. May part of me remain behind these eyes, but it did not. A herd continued down their unmown road, and the deer at the window broke his gaze and turned and followed them. This was the start of some new work for me. It was the fall. I had been trying to untangle all my questions. I wished that I was not myself. I never saw the angel after that. Time passed, nor did the herd return. I went back to what I had been doing all along, except that I could feel 
a certain focus, the concentration of a being standing watching what I am. Funding for Choose to be Curious is provided in part by Concentric Private Wealth, where changemakers develop clarity for today and confidence for tomorrow by centering on what matters most, which involves more than just money. More information at www.concentricpw.com. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor. Choose to be Curious is sponsored in part by realtor Christine Hopkins. Curious about real estate? Christine works with clients from around the world using her time and knowledge to build community. As she likes to say, community engagement has always been my big why. Working in real estate has helped me express that. What makes you part of a community more than living there? For more information, visit facebook.com slash Nova House Hunter. Funding for Choose to be Curious on WERA 96.7 FM is provided in part by the Center for Parents and Teens, where families are strengthened through a connection built through positive communication, mutual understanding, and realistic expectations of one another. For more information, visit www.centerforparentsandteens.com.